So maybe I'd like to continue a little bit from um, yesterday. I've been talking about, I mentioned this second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana, feeling, and its importance, uh, the relationship to um, pleasant, unpleasant, like, dislike, you know, it's a basic building block of the mind, which can be a, the underlying foundation of a lot of you know, suffering from desire, attachment, or, of course, emotional complications. Recently, somebody uh, told me about, um, apparently they, they did a kind of survey, or, well, pretended to do a kind of survey in, in Sweden, I think it was, where they phoned up people and asked them lots of questions. In fact, what people didn't know, they were, more, were kind of random questions. That wasn't really the point. But somewhere in that interview, in asking questions, they asked everybody they phoned, they asked how they felt they were doing at the moment, you know, how they felt about, you know, how things were going in their life. And so they collected those answers, and then afterwards they checked that against the weather patterns on that day in, in Sweden. And it turns out uh, that, and perhaps that's not that much of a surprise, that in places where the weather was what we consider usually be rather bad, like uh, cold and windy and, and rain particularly, uh, people would generally have a more, there was a higher percentage of people who would feel that their life wasn't going so well, they didn't feel so good about their life. Whereas in those places where there was actually nice weather, sunshine, blue skies, was a higher percentage of people feeling, oh, things were actually quite okay, and, and there were people who were more content. Not about the weather, apparently, but about how they were, how, about their life, how they were doing. So, as I said, perhaps that doesn't entirely surprise us, how they, you have heard about that before, how you know, the weather can influence the way we feel about life and ourselves and all kinds of things. But then they did a second mock survey, said we are phoning people again. But this time, same thing, they did kind of more or less random questions, uh, not really what they're not really interested in. But very much at the beginning of the interview, they were including the question, there were people asking people, oh, what's the weather like? You know, where you are at the moment. And then you know, they would go on with the, with the interview. And then later in the, in, in the interview, again, they would ask, you know, how you feel uh, you are doing in life. And the, perhaps certainly for me, a surprising thing, interesting thing, was that that would abolish the effect. So there wasn't any significant difference anymore in how people responded, which is very interesting. Just the fact that the people were actually at an earlier stage alerted, so made conscious, so we're taking in some consciously what the weather was like, with no connection actually to the question about how they were doing. That question would come much later. You know, so there wasn't, in that sense, a conscious recall or some kind of connection. There still, it would abolish the effect that the weather would have on their self-assessment. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess one can draw lots of uh, conclusions, you know, from, from that, uh, from that survey uh, in terms of how consciousness or the lack of it works and influence our self-assessment decisions or kinds of things. 
so I don't know. I don't. I, I haven't got a you know. I haven't got a sort of finished conclusion of that. But I found it interesting in terms of the whole idea of the practice of awareness and becoming aware. Particular second foundation of mindfulness or second area or theme of where to bring mindfulness. Vedana feeling, the pleasant unpleasant, seems to be. Like if we, if we see something, you know, even without a, a direct connection to a particular purpose that we have in our life, what's connected, just by seeing something, it doesn't anymore have the same effect on us. It just to make something conscious, it means that something like in our, in, in our, in our consciousness, in our mind kind of stays clear of that and just puts that into, pers into perspective. You know, obviously, this is something that carried through for most of the people interviewed, when then later we're actually dealing with other separate questions that didn't have that influence anymore. Uh, reminds me of that saying, or that saying about you know, generally working with mental content, tendencies in our mind. You know, in, in Buddhism, we sometimes talk about latent tendencies, fetters, attachments, addictions, uh, mental habits, conditionings. Those things that we are not aware of are the ones that run our life. You know, they operate basically, you know, uh, outside of our conscious awareness, behind the scenes, as it were, and are those precisely because we, we're not seeing it are going to bypass our, our guards, you know, guards of awareness, consciousness, and therefore actually are going to have a much stronger influence in terms of determining, uh, conditioning, how we're going to respond, react to situations in life. So that's a quite a strong um, advertisement, I think, for practicing mindfulness, awareness, and to try to strengthen that, to always bring more consciousness, more awareness to what is going on in our life, also the subtle aspects. And it can be, if we become aware of just this very simple mechanism in our life, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, like and dislike, it can save us a lot of entanglement in complicated emotions and emotional entanglement with and conflict with other people, with ourselves, with life and so forth. Because you know, our kind of emotional stuff, the afflictive emotions, what we call afflictive emo emotions, are basically um, sophisticated elaborations on this basic prin principle of like and dislike. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like catching a fire early, if you can catch it at that point. You know, it's still very easy to put out. Or at least it's very easy to see what's going on there. It can cut through a lot of proliferation. If uh, you know anything happens at, at some point during your day and something that doesn't meet your preference, if you don't notice this happening, then of course could be the weather. <laughs> Getting up in the morning and while wow, it's raining again, you know, you wanted to go for a walk and it's raining, howling wind, and on a conscious level you're just oh sorry, you just put it aside, but you don't really pay proper attention how that is actually infiltrated your, your kind of system and you start to be in a slightly grumpy mood and then you carry that with you and then if you don't pay attention to that then it's, you know, it remains unexamined you carry it with you into your next interaction next person that meets you in the morning just, just asking you a question they need some information or, or you know, need some, some advice and something practical ask you a question perfectly harmless question and you snap at them you didn't even realize it just came out of this you know, the lingering grumpiness that came from the dislike from something unpleasant. And then they, of course, they don't know the whole history behind it or, you know, you're snapping at them and so 
depending on what mood they are in, they're going <laughs> to react to that and then just might, perhaps in a not very sensitive way, kind of mirror straight back at your, your, your unkindness. And before you know it, you're in some kind of emotional heat up in some kind of quarrel. You might have an argument or you just stay with the kind of oh, bad feeling. You know, what was that about? And, and then sometimes if you, just, if you can't just trace that back, and I think, oh, you know, why did I, you know, why did he say that to me? Oh, yeah, I wasn't very nice in my way I responded. Why did I respond like that, you know? And then you notice back, oh, the kind of mood that you were actually in, that you can reason, where did that actually come from? You know? Perhaps then at the beginning there's something very simple, you know, about just something you didn't like, dislike, you don't catch it there, and then it starts to spread, you know, as it was throughout the internal climate, you know, the external weather, gets transposed into your internal weather. It starts to rain and storm inside as well. You know? And then everything gets seen through that lens, even without you being conscious of it. I think that's something very, seems to me, something very akin to what's been, this person told me about what must be going on with this example of the survey in the, you know, that they did in Sweden. You know? If people were questioned, you know, so they would probably wouldn't have realized. I said that their response, their maybe more um, pessimistic response about their life, had anything to do with the weather at the time. Just and yet, you no, know, that that was provided the internal climate that was, was tainting the way they looked at their life in general. And so that leads also, I think, to the what, the, the third area to which to bring. Uh, mindfulness, uh, around which to cultivate mindfulness, according to Satipatthana, which is citta or mindfulness or awareness, uh, recollection of the heart, citta, the heart or the mind. And um, see, that would be very much like the, just to be aware precisely of that, of the internal weather, the internal weather, not the external weather, but the internal weather. No? The state of mind, quality of our consciousness at, at, the, at the time being, the mood, also the emotions, you know, all that stuff going on inside. You know, things that are mentioned in the, in the sutta, in the Satipatthana sutta, or the, the various Satipatthana suttas are things like, you know, whether the mind is affected by lust, or whether it's free of lust, whether it's affected by anger, free of anger, whether it's expanded or contracted, you know, whether it's dull or whether it's bright, those kind of things, you know, the quality of, of our mind, to, to be aware of that, to notice that. And that's precisely the point, that often we are not only kind of aware of, or aware of some of the things. That's, for many people, some of the most difficult things and difficult aspects of dukkha, of disease, or something also to work with. Physical pain depends on how intense it is, can be, physical discomfort can be also, of course, very, you know, very, obviously very challenging. But uh, emotions and moods are just so pervasive, so easily kind of take over. We are kind of kind of mesmerized by them, or we just we, it's very difficult to keep a perspective on them. It's just a phenomena. It's just another another set of sensations, impressions that arise in that space of our presence in the present consciousness. It's rather more like very much so much tainting kind of all that space of presence that we are not seeing them. We're seeing through them. And as always, that's by definition, no? From this, those parts that we are not clearly conscious of just saying, oh, I'm just, I'm, there's grumpiness right now, no? That's, that's probably certain. If we don't see them, then we see through them. As long as this is like our attention hasn't been distilled out of that content, 
Well, that content that, hasn't, that we haven't made ourselves free from, that we don't have a perspective on, then it means that is actually really tainting the, the, the quality of our consciousness as well. It's like the color of the glasses that we're looking through, because we're not seeing it, we're seeing through it. Our attention, our consciousness is going to be affected by it, not colored by it. So then you see everything, like if you're in a, in a bad mood, in a grumpy mood, and you're not really fully aware of that, then you see everything through the grumpy mood. And then everything becomes you know, slightly ugly. <laughs> People become slightly ugly, things become slightly pointless, uh, and things are kind of a burden, and yes, you, can, you think you definitely can see that life is suffering, but it's actually what, you, what, you, what it is, is you're, it's, it's not necessarily you know, the dukkha that the Buddha was talking about in all its facets. It's yeah, a certain aspect, but it's basically, it's your aversion no? that you're not seeing. So you're seeing actually this aversion, you're seeing through those, the lens of aversion. Now, when we become aware of it, well, then grumpiness or bad mood becomes an object of attention. Now, it's important to notice, once you really notice that, it's like our awareness becomes free of that grumpiness. It's a process of purification. You know? It's like it distills itself out of it. That stuff settles out. We can see it. Because then that in us, which can see the grumpiness, is not grumpy, isn't it? That's free of the grumpiness. That's seeing the grumpiness. That's what we call awareness, that's the knowing. You know, that which knows grumpiness is not grumpy, it's just knowing. That's what it does, that is quality. And it's something that if you cultivate this quality of mindfulness, which is carries say mindfulness, is just really paying attention, being present, then this quality of awareness, which is always, to, to some extent, you know, is always present in consciousness, is an aspect of consciousness, the knowing of what's happening right now, you know, becomes clearer, we can actually start to recognize that, not as an idea, but now experience. Yes, there is all kinds of stuff going on, there's experience, and there's a knowing of the experience. And I'm conscious of it, so I know what's happening. That means there's always something in my experience that is more than just the content. We always experience it with the content, it's not, it's not separate, it's not, you cannot, you know, where is it? You know, it's not, it's not another thing somewhere, then it would be another object again, it would become content. It's the knowing of the content, you know, it's that element of knowing in consciousness. So that is something that we want to make more clear and stabilize and cultivate you know, with, this, with mindfulness meditation, this form of meditation. That's why we always bring back attention to the present, to start to establish a more clear presence with the content of our experience. And yeah, I mean, we use the breath, we use the body, because that brings us in our present experience. That is kind of the anchor, where we can anchor our attention so that it doesn't always get carried away with that, you know, hot air balloon of our mind, you know, that tends to keep going up into the clouds and to imaginations, fantasies, worries, you know, thinking about the future or whatever, making up stories, you know, you know tether that balloon to the ground, you know, through the attention to the body. Then we can actually start to look and see and examine everything, principally, that is coming up within that present awareness, presence of mind. You know? then, Awareness can actually know it, and we can cultivate then this particular quality of consciousness. So our attention is not just always kind of flickering around and according to its conditioning and preferences, looking for what's interesting. No, there's this, we start to experience a certain kind of stability and steadiness, something that is just noticing what, what is happening right now. You know? And that, of course, 
applies to what comes through the, the external senses, but also what comes up in our mind. No? Hopefully, no, that's what you experience when we cultivate this more awareness, we become more aware of like, the inner workings of our mind. No? First, maybe just more the surface things, more obvious ones, particular kind of moods coming up, the judging mind is always kind of making comments, you know, like, like that sports commentator on the fence, and now you're doing well, you're not doing not so good, oh, now you're really losing it, and that, was, that, wasn't, the, you know, that wasn't a good move, then why you should have known better, and blah, 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 blah. You start to know those kind of things, you know. And, of course, strong emotions when they come up, reactions, things like that, delight, interest. Gradually, maybe we become more aware of the more subtle underpinnings of that, you know, the things that actually, out of which those emotions and reactions evolve, you know, that underlying mood, you know, that emotional soup. It has a kind of certain kind of taste, which varies at times, of course, in which we are, our mind is kind of steeped in, you know, and that we see things. And we can also notice how that, you know, how it changes, you know, the subtle gets affected in subtle ways by situations. And whenever we do that, it's, and for whatever we can see, that quality of seeing, of knowing, the quality of seeing, which is, say, the attention, the mindfulness, and the knowing, which is the wisdom aspect, mm-hmm. um, is, becomes stronger. You know, we cultivate it, you know, like a muscle that we cultivate in the gym, you know, because we exercise it. And so it's that strengthening of that seeing, that knowing, that the Pali term, you know, used in Satipatthana Sutta and in other places, Sati Sampajanya, Sati mindfulness, and Sampajanya clear comprehension, knowing, you know, understanding. Those two kind of work together. Sati, you know, attention, basically sets up the, the stage in which our natural intelligence which the Pali term that is usually used in that case is Sampajanya, or clear, clear comprehension, can actually start to operate, you know, can become stronger, purified, and you know, start to actually understand what we, what we are seeing. You know, you're not just seeing something, you're not just with something, you also start to, by exercising your intelligence, you start to understand what is, this, what is the significance of it, what is this actually about, what is the relevance of it. And also the wisdom starts to, about what you're seeing starts to become operative. Without any attention, without any presence of mind, of course, the wisdom cannot properly operate, cannot be cultivated. You know, if your mind is just always kind of going around, it just always remains theoretical knowledge, information. But when you start to actually bring that intelligence through cultivated attention to our actual experience, then it becomes applied kind of wisdom. You start to actually understand how our mind operates, how it works, where we create suffering, you know, where we get stuck. Where our button, what our buttons are, you know, we notice that when, by noticing, really understanding how our buttons get pushed, we start to locate what our buttons are, and then we just can start to get some understanding around it, you know, um, what those buttons are, how they work, and start to fruitfully engage in this process of maybe start to entangle some of these emotional entang- entanglements that we have, these emotional patterns, habits, conditionings that are creating disease, suffering uh, for us in our life. And that can, of course, be sometimes quite fiddly, long kind of <laughs> work, and has various aspects to it. So if our uh, capacity for presence becomes stronger, it means we can stay present more continuously, not just when the going is good on the meditation cushion, when we have kind of, um, kind of more ideal kind of peaceful conditions, but 
also with a bit more turbulent stuff. No? Because usually what happens, particularly with emotions, is of course, either there are the more subtle elements of it, which you basically are not, our awareness is not strong enough to actually see you know, that this is actually coloring of our glasses. We don't really see it because it's too subtle for us to see. Or the more turbulent stuff, it becomes just so strong that we get kicked off balance. Isn't it? So we lose our perspective, we get lost in it. Now that's the other thing, how emotions, emotions obviously easily overwhelming. We lose our balance, we lose our perspective. So if you cultivate, you know, you cultivate a muscle, cultivating the, the muscle of, of attention and of awareness, means then gradually this container becomes stronger. You know, hopefully it's something that we experience. We, you know, if you're not just using meditation to cultivate beautiful states of mind, but if you cultivate actually attention, the capacity of attention, then no matter what comes up, in our meditation, whether it's nice or whether it's difficult. What we learn is to be patient and keep trying to have a perspective on it, keep trying to see it, and keep trying to take refuge in the seeing rather than getting lost in what we see. So then the natural process is that um, we start to see more and more things, and part of those might be things that we don't really like to see, that might not be, be pleasant. Sometimes it's a gradual thing, sometimes it happens to people who meditate, particularly at the beginning. If you've never meditated before, you start meditating, and then it's quite a common reaction. People think, well, before I started to meditate, I sort of was a reasonable kind of person. You know, once I started to meditate, wow, you know, I, I seem to be all over the place, and you know, I, I don't feel so good about myself anymore. I thought meditation was about becoming peaceful. Instead, <laughs> there's all this kind of stuff coming up that I, did, I didn't expect that. Well, it's because you start to pay attention, isn't it? Because before, all that mechanisms in our mind that we had, the more unconscious mechanisms and, and less enlightened say, mechanisms of, to, to feel good about ourselves, like denial, projection, blaming the world for things going wrong, you know, or, or really not looking at something, repression, all those kind of things, sublimation, you know, all those, you heard about that if you studied psychology. They had one field day after another, isn't it? Because they were never actually examined. You know, once you start to meditate, you actually start to look what your mind is doing. Well, some of those things don't work so well anymore. You know, the denial doesn't work so well anymore. It still tries to assert itself. You can also use meditation techniques to not look at things. It doesn't mean that just because you start to meditate, you know, you're rid of denial. <laughs> it's a very powerful force. But usually, if, if meditation works somewhat, you just start to see more things. But hopefully you also, as you reinvest and you're interested in seeing things and you try to actually learn to stay with things, you know, not to push things away, but also not to believe in what, to com what comes up. You invest into the container, container of awareness, of attention. Your capacity to be this stuff, even if it's difficult stuff, should increase. And then, like if you suddenly see something, some aspect about yourself, something you've been doing that before you weren't really aware of, or you just always felt justified in justifying it because everybody's doing it and that kind of thing, you not necessarily feel bad about seeing it. Even if there's something that we don't like seeing, we feel good about it because we recognize we have grown in capacity to actually see about something. You know, we have developed capacity, we have matured, we have actually grown up a bit more. You know, so much that we can start to acknowledge things about ourselves that before didn't, we might not even have had the capacity or the strength to actually look at. You know? So it's actually a sign of, of maturity. You know? you start to be able to own up to a bit more of, of your inner contradictions and, and you know, aspects of a personality that you don't feel so proud of or, 
or your very pride, or <laughs> conceit, no, another thing. Conceit about, you know, doing well, you know, look how well my meditation is going. And then suddenly you see that one. Oh, that doesn't look very nice. Ah, but being able to see it, that's a sign of spiritual growth. And always notice the principle is that which sees it is by definition also free of it. So then all you want to do is invest in the seeing, in the capacity to know. So the one aspect of the power of that awareness if it gets stronger and also in which it is actually a, a becomes a refuge and it's a place to look for, uh, for freedom, freedom from suffering, is pre precisely that possibility. Let's say with something like anger, you know, if you want to work with anger in any way, the first of all, you have to be able to really be with it, isn't it? Accept that it's there and then stay with it, feel it. If you're just always busy running away from it, or justifying it, or just projecting it out, or, or something, or acting it out, you can't get any handle on it to work with it. Isn't it? You just keep being a victim of it. Uh, or other people keep being <laughs> victims of it. You know. So just as an example, you know, with anger, when you actually start to be able to hold it and feel the anger, you've got the ability there and the freedom to just feel it, which means you don't have to deny it, you don't have to repress it. You also don't have to believe it. You just feel it. That's how it is right now. You know? And there's nothing wrong with it in that sense, like it shouldn't be there. You know, and I've heard before perhaps this saying by, from Ajahn Chah, you know, if, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. If the anger is there, it's because the conditions for that anger to arise were in place. And maybe one of those conditions is our ignorance about it, no? and our conditioned habits or something. So then the Dhamma answer, the practice is then to the willingness to feel it so that then we can start to work with it. You know? So we don't act if we can, no? that's a start. You know, we try to contain it so we don't just unreflectively act, act it out. But we also don't try to fight it or repress it or deny it just about anything. We just look at it as it is. Then we can start to question it, examine it. And it, as a principle of works in similar ways for any kind of emotion that is afflictive or even positive emotions, ultimately. And so there are various avenues. We can start to look at it from various Dhamma angles you know, by, by questioning it. We can, of course, contemplate on the question what's the point of it, where's it coming from, um, what's the validity of it, what's the use of it, or the lack of use of it. No. One interesting thing I heard recently is, um, I don't know how true that is, but there, it sounds like it has a ring of there certainly, maybe it's completely true, I certainly have some, some truth in it, I think. The neuroscientists say that the usual cycle of an emotion you know, processed through the brain is about, I think, something like two minutes. No. And uh, most emotions, if they don't last for more than two minutes, are not actually much of a problem. Well, it depends, of course, what you do with them. But I say, like, for example, sometimes people, spiritual people, you know, Buddhists think anger, well, anger is wrong. As a Buddhist, I shouldn't have anger. Well, you're possibly always starting off on the wrong foot because you already come in with some kind of judgment, like it shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't feel anger. And then, well, it already, and some people invites to then, again, into spiritual denial, you, you pretend that you haven't got any anger because you're very concerned about your self-image, and as, of course, as a good Buddhist, you shouldn't have anger, so you pull a bright face and pretend it's not happening. Or you start to judge yourself or getting angry or with yourself for being angry or depressed, or notice how that is always the way how we complicate emotions, no? 
first you feel angry, then you think, I shouldn't feel angry, so you get annoyed with yourself. Then you feel, then you say, well, I shouldn't get annoyed with myself. You feel guilty for being annoyed with yourself, for getting angry, and then, and so forth, you know, it complicates things. Rather than just stop it, you know, mindfulness, or is, is it could stop it right there, you know, be with what comes up right now while it's anger, that's a theme. Like anger, well, there are different kinds of things that, that we fit under that umbrella of definition of anger. But in some form, you could say it's part of our psychic immune system. You know, there are situations where it's certainly very natural emotion. You know, for some reason, we are wired to experience anger at some point. It's something, it's one natural response to a threat. If somebody or somebody is invading your territory, stepping on your toe, one natural reaction would be anger. It's, just, it's a way of showing it. Stop. You're going too far. Now, that might be justified or not justified. First of all, it's just an energetic defense reaction or keeping something out that is trying to invade you, whether it's psychologically, physically, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is, according to this research anyway, is a, a normal cycle of that coming up, if there's a, a reason for anger coming up, it should last not more than two minutes. No? Now, of course, the situation that you're in might, of course, keep stimulating it and, and keep it going. But if that's not the case, somebody did step on your tone and you felt well, some anger reaction, well, you notice that, okay, it's naturally enough. Now, if you're still hanging on to that anger after two days rather than two minutes, then there might be reason to start to reflect about, well, something is going wrong here, isn't it? You know, why, why am I still hanging on to this? You know, something, why I got stuck here? You know, that idea from yesterday, attachment, you know, the sticky mind comes, of course, comes to mind there, isn't it? So if it's lasting for more than two minutes, it means we are feeling it. Something is feeling it. And we might, of course, be justified to question whether it's useful to do that. And of course, different emotions, they have different, different contexts, different ways of skillfully reflect, uh, reflect on it. Anger, we can look about it. You know, how is it actually useful? No? Is it beautiful? Is it right? And if all of the answers to the question are no, then, well, why do I keep doing it? No, it's interesting. I mean, you, you need to really kind of be, be honest and also, in a way, kind of fierce, you know, to talk to yourself and, and investigate, looking into that. You know? One thing about anger, particularly if you feed it, is, is obvious. It's like, um, you know, in terms of, of a Dhamma contemplation and traditional reflections on that that are given also in the suttas, so, of course, if you are indulging in anger, the, the first one, and possibly the only one, that you are hurting is yourself. Anger is often related to the idea of getting even, not getting revenge, getting back at the other person. But often, <laughs> that's not at all what's happening, isn't it? First of all, before you know, we are lashing out at somebody else, we have already actually spoiled the well-being in our own mind. And let's like, say an example of, say, you're driving to the monastery and you're getting annoyed because somebody's cutting in and you know in a, in a corner while, while you're driving and then you're getting angry at that person and then you your whole evening is kind of spoiled you're sitting in your meditation trying to work with the anger that you feel at that person well you are the one who's suffering you know, the person that you got angry and that other driver well who knows you know they might have <laughs> long forgotten about it they might have even noticed and they are blissfully unaware of your anger so you're not getting even at all the only thing is you keep hurting yourself Sometimes that can just be, of course, that kind of reflection can be what helps. Simple reflection of that to actually realize the, the futility of what we're doing you know, can help in, in, in dropping that. You know? 
and you know diff different kind of reflections like that, like about the the you know the the importance of it. You know, what am I trying to achieve? The impermanence of it itself. You know, how long can you actually hang on to your anger? And of course, often angered also in order to for us to hang on to it. I mean, it is not continuous usually, isn't it? It's something we need to be reminded of, or we need to remind ourselves. You know, even if you're really annoyed with somebody. And it's kind of an anger that you're carrying with you for 20 years. I mean, have you been angry all those 20 years? And you know, this is something you're just going to have to keep looking into. Reflections on on impermanence of our life and how important are kind of these kind of resentments that we have or gripes that we have in view of that. You know, if we can look at the fact that well, we could die any moment. You know, if if we would die next week. Would we want to die, you know, having held on to this resentment or anger? No? And we think, no, we wouldn't. We would decide to somehow make an effort to try and let go of that, whatever is needed, in order to die peacefully. No? So what if we would die tomorrow? No? <laughs> in fact, you could die in a couple of hours. No? So, and it would be nice, of course, if we could let go of um, the anger be before then. And of course, the, the, the types of reflection on the other person, or if you think of the other person. If we not really see what we are doing, I said we, we tend to, anger tends to be what is tainting our glasses. So then whatever we, we see of this person is going to be tainted by that anger, isn't it? So then it's where the, the classical reflection that's offered in the suttas is then to be the antidote. No, that's where kind of this meta practice, for example, comes. It doesn't mean that you have to pretend that you like those people as you don't, or that you're not, or trying not to see the negative parts, but can you also, can you see also maybe the positive aspects of that person? Can you also, can you still be able to actually balance out, you know, the negative experience that you have with them with looking at the good side of that person? You know, or if not, can you at least see the fact that they are human beings who are also suffering? And also going to go, either also going to die, and and if they act in ways that annoy us, is probably also a direct result of their limitations of their and of their suffering. No? There's probably somewhere behind there. There's a hurt person that, which is the reason why they are lashing out. No? So those are all kinds of reflections, of course, that we can do. And if they don't help, you know, if, it's, if you just recognize, for example, that these kind of things of being irritable, being uh, tending to anger, something kind of underlying kind of patterns of our personality, um, it might just need some more sustained, also you know, prolonged, but also personal investigations in our conditioning to go to the root of where those things come from. You know, maybe we have to actually find, get in touch with that a hurt, possibly often, you know, with a lot of this conditioning, of course, a hurt child in ourself who has maybe, you know, built and started to talk for those strategies and patterns out of, you know, early childhood experiences that might have been very unfortunate, you know, unpleasant, and, you know, started to develop those as resources to, to defend itself against the hostile environment or an environment that has been perceived as hostile or unsafe. Now, a lot of our say, neurotic, unhelpful emotional patterns, you know, you're talking about patterns, not just some circumstantial but justified emotional response, but if you feel kind of these kind of patterns, have those kind of roots. And they are very difficult to, to shift. You know, it's, it's child psychology certainly has done a lot of research into you know, this very early conditioning. They go very deep, and the mind 
it's very, very reluctant to erase any tapes that it has kind of recorded or to unlearn any tricks that it learned. Usually what happens is we just we build upon what we've got, so we become more, more complicated. <laughs> and sometimes when we're in a crisis situation, the more sophisticated complications, they just all fall apart, so we resort to the basic early conditionings. It's called regression, isn't it? When, when you kind of suddenly, you're, and you're, you're grown up, say, 60-year-old, kind of sophisticated university professor of psychology, maybe, and you find yourself of throwing a tantrum, you know, because you don't, <laughs> because you're not getting what you wanted. Your toast has been burned for the third day in a row or something, and you're throwing a tantrum, and just part of you recognizes, at least, hopefully, quickly after the fact, that this wasn't a mature kind of adult reaction. You know, <laughs> your mind just went straight through all the sophisticated later recordings and tricks that you learned, just some very basic kind of thing that that you tried out and was successful when you were two years old, you know, when you threw a tantrum and then your parents gave you what you wanted. <laughs> um, the yummy toast that wasn't burned. Uh, so those, those things can be humiliatingly persistent, you know, even after 30 years of practice and <laughs> having attained all kinds of spiritual qualities, some of those emotional patterns are still there. Um, but if we start to go more to the roots of it, that's, we get more of a chance of disarming some of them, or perhaps at least taking some of the edge out of them. It seems to work almost in a similar way as with, with the Swedish weather report. Some things get kind of healed, also wounds, you know, of that famous inner child, which is usually actually a wounded child, you know, in, in modern uh, society, gets actually healed if it's seen. It's almost like we see with the weather. Once you have recognized it's seen it, then it's not a problem anymore. It, doesn't, it can't operate anymore from behind the scenes and, and manipulate our emotional kind of reactions to life once we see it. Particularly if you see it with a compassionate attitude. Well, that's why it's fundamental importance to develop, try to find ways in which to connect with and to develop kindness, attitude of kindness. That thing about becoming your best friend. As much as it, it happens and eases our relationship with others, it does miracles for our relationships with, with ourselves, if we can do that. You know, whatever we discover, what comes up, you might call meditation you know, from a therapeutic kind of view, you know, from the view of the therapeutic community, if you like. Psychologists see it as an uncovering technique. You know, we are opening a lid there because we're creating an environment of awareness. If we, if we keep practicing awareness, we're going to start to see things. <laughs> If we create a friendly inner environment, we start to invite the demons up. Precisely, those are the kind of things that keep being unhappy and creating trouble. That seems to be how it works. These things, if, if you don't look at them, you shut them in the basement and do the lid down. You know, any child, her child, that you shut in the basement, the longer you shut it up, the more of a monster it's, it's going to be, isn't it? That's very basic child psychology. Same thing happens with our inner child. No? Things that we, don't, that we deny, we don't look at, uh, shut down in our own basement or internal basement, it's going to create trouble. It's going to come back somewhere and bite us when we are unaware of, you know, one day we, 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 don't, we forget to put the lock on that basement door and it's going to come out, you know, and it's going to create havoc. Uh, but even if it doesn't, it's going to create this, it's, it's a very strong part of this underlying sense of things not being quite right. We keep reading about and looking at these spiritual teachers who talk about meta and you see and we might meet some of those people always around pebble easy with everything don't make a problem out of this why doesn't it work for us why do we snap at people again you know 
just before they ask a harmless question at the wrong moment. All this unfinished business inside, you know, unlived life, you know, unfulfilled longing stuff from a long time back that we've given up on, that we've lost contact with, you know, we shut down. And a lot of this stuff is just wants to be recognized, it wants to be seen. And that's a chance if we are in our third foundation of mindfulness, for me it fits all in there, if our awareness becomes strong and we become willing to be and capable of being present with all of our experience, no matter what comes up, internal weather, well, let, we invite those things in, let them come up, we start to recognize them, see them, say, oh, that's all right, no, that's part of myself, good. I've seen it, no, I can see you, it's, it's okay. No. Then you can actually start to see, to understand that while you're not, this has been, that's been maybe from 45 years ago, but you can look at that, you know, be your own good parent, recognize, acknowledge that sign, say, oh yeah, I can see you've been hurt, you haven't been seen. Oh, I can, you can start to learn to do this seeing for it. And then you realize that those maybe unfulfilled longings, or whatever they are, they are from that time, they are not from now anymore. And then you can actually start to move on. You know, a lot of our, our kind of inner wounds or this kind of thing can be can healed in that, that kind of way. I mean, this is very much, of course, a, just just the touching into it thing. This is a very broad topic. You know? But the basic principle is that you know, willingness to un, and investigate. You know, what is underneath all this the uncomfortable emotional reactions, that kind of things, those kind of patterns. If we develop the capacity to stay present with it and give attention to them, then we can basically what we can do is we can use our mind, our intelligence to ask the pertinent questions you know, that go towards what we don't know yet, what we haven't seen yet. You know, rather than keep going towards what we think we know, to all those filing cabinets of accumulated knowledge, which haven't really done the job, haven't changed anything, otherwise we wouldn't still be here with the discomfort. Just Think about what are your relevant questions. Think about, you know, why is this always such a problem? I don't know. But I want to know. I would like to know. No? So don't go to your mental knowledge, to your mind, or trying to find the answers and the information you already got. Those filing cabinets obviously don't contain the answer, certainly not in a live kind of way. Go to directly to the feeling. That's what mindfulness of the body can help us with. So it becomes a resource. We're actually able to meet those things where they're actually real, where they are a lived experience that is in the body and the way how we feel those things in the body and that we can stay with them and finally offer them some attention. Rather than always talking about them or talking to them, we actually start to listen to them. You know, invite your body, your, your feeling body, your emotions to talk to you. Well, what, you know, what, is, what is really the problem? What is the most difficult about this? Well, what is so difficult about it? Why is it so difficult? Where is this coming from? What is lying underneath it? Now, those questions that venture beyond the horizon of what we think we already know. Invite the unknown to come up. That's how insight usually happens. It's, it's a new perception, seeing something new or seeing something in a new way. So an insight is always a surprise because it's something new. It's not something we know already. You know, so, so don't think about, oh, I'm going to want to have these insights that I heard about. If you know it already, it's not going to be an insight. It's not something new. But even if you think you know what you're going to be experiencing, the actual experience of it is going to be different. Insights on that kind of level, then be you know just asking the questions. Drop those questions into that space of your meditation. Use the stability of your attention 
that's a Mali that gas analysis that you have managed to build up. Now comes a moment of investigation. Now in this case, investigation doesn't mean, all right, now, now I'm going to think some smart thoughts about some interesting topic, about impermanence or this or that or the other. As I said, the other ways it could be just some perception arise. No, no, I invite a new insight, a new perception by dropping a question into that space, you know, into that pond, as it were, of the mind. Blop. You put your thing in here, your little stone, and it goes down. And then see what it brings up as it goes down. It might stir something up. Where is this coming from? You know, whatever, you know, whatever question seems relevant to you, you know, or, or, or what is, what is, why is this such a problem for me? Don't know, but you drop the question and then you listen. Listen to your experience. So your question is like that, the hook that you, that you throw into the, into the pond or the stone or whatever. You, know? you, know, you, just, you just drop some, some piece of food in there and see whether it attracts some creature. You don't know, you know what it's going to attract. Maybe lots of times nothing's going to happen. You know? Those things can be quite sharp. And suddenly maybe something's going to come up. And if you're ready for it, your conditions are in place, suddenly you might actually see something. Wow, that is what that is about. It could appear as a thought, it could appear as a memory, something you had forgotten about, maybe a ch early childhood memory, suddenly you see, wow, you know, this is significant, it's not just a random memory, this is directly connected to what I'm feeling here and to my question. And then you put things together. And if it's really true, it could be something very weird, not just some other emotion coming up. You know, you're investigating one emotion and suddenly the question is just this emotion suddenly disappears and something that lies underneath it, which has been actually sustaining that, that emotion that you're investigating is actually taking over. Saying, wow, that's what's underneath it. Looking at anger, I'm always, why always this problem with anger? You know, and you're looking at it in a meditative situation and then you keep inquiring, asking, staying with it, focusing on the anger, the feeling of the anger in the body, and then suddenly these things happen. It just disappears, and what comes up is an overwhelming feeling of helplessness. And your, your rational mind might, of course, think, well, what, that, what does that helplessness to, to do with anger? If you just keep asking, well, ask yourself the question, what has that to do with it? And then suddenly maybe you put things together. Really, yeah, anger is a very common reaction to helplessness. Helplessness is a very difficult emotion, very more difficult than anger. If you're in a situation where you feel you need to do something, you want to do something, but you can't, you're helpless. One common reaction would be you really lash out in anger because your anger at not being able to do something. You know, notice how helplessness can create rage. Try cornering a monkey. You know, people live in Sri Lanka, they, they know that kind of experience. You know, uh, the monkey being cornered, you know, suddenly you just panics, then you're really gonna, it's the last, resort when you come out in anger. And sometimes, you know, but anger can feel more like, for example, like a more empowering kind of emotion, certainly than helplessness. Helplessness for most people is worse. Anger, at least, particularly if you're a big guy, you know, you can move a lot of things with anger. You can make people dance to your tune. <laughs> so you can actually create a personality around that. It might feel actually good for a long time. You think, well, there's nothing wrong with anger. It works for me. It might not work the same well if you're a little guy, because then, <laughs> you know, whenever you get anger, you, you, you tend to lose the fight anyway. So then you might be easier invited to investigate that than if you're kind of two meters and, you know, kind of a kind of rugby player. But, you know, often, you know, even the big kind of two-meter guy rugby player, the original, you know, if he's very angry and wor worked a lot for him, it might, there might, there could have been, you know, actually some insecurity. This kind of is a cliche, isn't it? And it doesn't have to be the case, of course, but it could be. 
And it could be, of course, been starting somewhere in your childhood. Yes, that was, might be a pattern. Because as a little child, helplessness, we might not remember, but we can, of course, understand rationally. It's probably quite a common experience. You know, as a little child, you often feel quite helpless. You know? <laughs> and a common reaction for a little child feeling helpless is anger, it's rage. That's the one way that you can make yourself hurt, at least. Scream. <laughs> No, and then we, we forget the helplessness part but, and cultivate the anger part. So I'm just showing that in a bit of some examples, you know, how these investigations can work. Again, an example for um, collectedness and investigation working together. Important thing, of course, is if you do that, it only really works when we've got our resources in place. There's no point inviting all the demons if you have no resources to actually deal with them in the present. No? So that's why you have to ask and check for ourselves what are our resources. You know, if I'm actually asking, I'm venturing with my investigation in some difficult emotional territory, I want to be able to have some safe ground that I can retreat to if these things become overwhelming. Because that's the thing about third foundation of mindfulness when we talk about emotions, awareness of emotions. Remember the problem is always, or one of the problems, they can easily become overwhelming. We get carried away with them if they get too strong. So that's something we always want to be careful of. And that's why one of the resources that we built is these formal meditation retreats. We don't start straight away just by having encounter groups and, and work with our anger reactions and trying to be mindful. And we haven't actually got the resource, you know, particularly with very difficult emotions. We just feel defeated, getting overwhelmed by, our, by helplessness, anger, whatever it is, again and again and again. You know, it's almost like re-traumatizing ourselves. We're just getting worse. So you want to first build up some capacity, some resource. Then you can start to invite them in. So by working with a more neutral object, like breathing, and then a very grounding object, like body, you're starting to build up resource. And again, that's something that we need to remember when this stuff comes up. You know, if there's a lot of emotional stuff going up, in the chest, it's usually, isn't it, and the belly, for example, you know, you might, if you need to retreat because it comes too hot, well, maybe you can just remember, well, okay, the awareness of the emotion, it's not the emotion. <laughs> if your awareness is really strong, but if it's not, then that's just an afterthought, isn't it? It's just very flimsy. It's, you know, it's like trying to put up your tent in the middle of a storm. You, you won't even be able to read the manual, you know, because the storm is teared out of your hand. It's no, it's no good knowing how to build it up when the weather's nice. If you're in the middle of a storm, you need different resources, you know? But you might remember your legs. If you're overwhelmed with a strong emotion, Legs are usually not very emotional, or sometimes if they want, if they want to run away. <laughs> no, but usually, you know, look at, some, at the less emotional parts of your body, or whatever works for you. Because sometimes it's also good to really work with strong emotional patterns that are very debilitating. It's good to have a spiritual friend there. You know, when we can't do the holding, sometimes a friend can do it for us. You know, because they don't, they are not drawn in in the same way. They are not overwhelmed, hopefully much less likely, of course they don't feel the emotion that we are caught in the same way. So they might be able to help us keep a perspective and say, you know, that's what a good therapist is supposed to be doing, that's how therapy is supposed to work, isn't it? The therapist gives you a, a space in which you feel, can feel safe because of their ability that they have learned, the professional ability, so that you can bring up the difficult stuff that maybe you're traumatized by and work through it, you know, rather than being overwhelmed by it again, the therapist helps you to work through it in a more skillful way without being lost in it. And so you gradually can build up capacity 
so you can start to deal with it on your own. You don't need the therapist anymore. No, if it, if it works right. If it works wrong, then you, of course, become dependent on the therapist. You know? <laughs> but that is the idea of what a spiritual friend is, is, is about for. So sometimes we need also these external resources, you know, if we don't have them internally. But, you know, talking about working with difficult emotions, it's, it's never a question of sorting out all of your neuroses or, or difficult emotional patterns. That's never going to end. It can just become, of course, also a narcissistic meditator's preoccupation, you know, just, just oh, working on my emotional difficulties. And, you know, <laughs> and there's always another one. It's useful, of course, to get some insight and to free our, ourselves of some of them. It's like emotional energy. It's life energy that's stuck there in certain kind of ways, ruts, which are not helpful. So it's a way of claiming back some of our energy again. It becomes more free. You know, our emotions run a bit more freely and more, it will be, our life will be more emotionally responsive in a more adequate way in the situation. You know? Don't become emotionally so stuck anymore in, in just conditioned reactive patterns. You know? So our emotional responses become more skillful, more alive, more flexible, more etiquette. So that's very good. But we're always going to have, of course, our particular twists and personalities. You know, I think a lot of that increased freedom from emotions is more to start to develop by freeing some of that and doing some of those knots, freeing some of that energy, more of that energy is going to become free for to be reinvested in presence itself. So it's like we get more space, more space in our mind, more space to feel. You know? That increases our capacity to be with emotional reactions and not getting lost in it, not falling into them, not acting them out, not having to react to them, but just be with them, feeling them. And if they hurt, we can just be with them, just feel, oh, it just hurts. And that's just that. It just hurt. But there's a lot of more space around it. No? It's just like the image for that is like, say, with, with water. If, you, if your mind is like a bucket of water and you throw a stone in it, it's splash. You know, you've got a mess. But if your mind gets bigger, it's stronger, it's more like, say, a swimming pool you know, or a pond. And you throw the same stone in it and just make some beautiful ripples. And you say, oh, look at that, you know, how nice. <laughs> it's a bit more like that. I'm also in every retreat, I, so far, so I shall continue that tradition, I mentioned this example of, um, of that spiritual teacher, not a Buddhist, but uh, quite close to Buddhist teaching, Ramdas. So you heard about this American teacher who used to be actually a university professor before or lecturer, before he got into spiritual teachings. He went more into kind of the Hindu past, had a Hindu guru. But um, one of the few talks that I heard by him, listened to him by him, was so he was talking to an audience of his disciples after he'd been practicing for about 40 years or so. And he said, when he started as a young man, a young uh, post-degree university lecturer or something like that, and he started on the spiritual path, he had this idea that he was going to sort out all his neuroses. And he said, well, here I am 40 years later talking to you. And he was already kind of a world-renowned guru or teacher. <laughs> he said, I haven't sorted out a single one of my neuroses. <laughs> Which could sound very disappointing. However, he said, for him, how it is, this is like when he started, he was living like in a little student bedsit, where you have a very small room and you've You've got a cupboard in there, a table, a chair, and a bed, and very, and maybe a radiator if you're lucky, and very little space to move around. And so whenever he would move in there, he would, you know, he's a fairly big fellow, you know, he was kind of hurt himself by bumping into one of his 
pieces of furniture. No? And I'm saying it's like this, my neur the neurosis is like the furniture in the mind, isn't it? And I don't have any space to move around them, so I kept hurting myself, you know, running into them. And while he certainly claimed whether it's true or not, another question, but he's saying that now, after 40 years, it's more, he said, I'm living like in an aircraft hangar, with a very big space. So he still had the same pieces of furniture. Now, personality basically still the same, but he had a lot of space around it. And also, you wouldn't bump into his furniture all the time. There's a certain kind of tendency, personality tendency, you still probably similar. That's what we're going to pick up and what we see if you look inside. And sometimes, as a meditator, you know, after all this meditation, you haven't actually changed. It's still the same kind of personality. What we don't see is sometimes, hopefully we do, but sometimes we miss that, we have actually possibly learned a lot more you know, than our, con our original conditioning. We have actually learned a bit about how to actually manage that conditioning. We have actually developed some space around it. And so we're actually not acting it out anymore in the same way. And so often it's actually other people who actually earlier notice, oh, you seem to be a totally changed person. You say, oh, no, it's still the same, you know, still the grumpy, grumpy old jit, you know. Yeah, but you're not actually manifesting it in the same way. Because you actually, you can actually start to learn to laugh about it. Oh, here I am again. My grumpy morning mood. And, and part of you is actually learn to laugh about it because you've got some perspective on it. You've got some space around it. You know? And that's, that's an experience of freedom. And that's an, another thing, of course, to always to pay attention to. Notice whenever you work with those kind of inner stuff, no, it's very important to clear up some of the stuff, but always to try and come back to that experience of awareness itself, of being aware of these feelings. And is it actually really a problem right now? Feeling of jealousy coming up. Is it really a problem? Or am I just still habitually making a problem out of it, creating a personality out of it, or just proves that I'm a bad person or something? That's just a feeling of jealousy. No? I can see it. If I can see it, I've got the chance to let go of it you know, and not engage with it. Don't own it. Don't become jealous just because the feeling of jealousy comes up. It's just a feeling of jealousy. Observe it like another experience that comes and goes. You know. So that's another way in which we can realize and see the potential of freedom and awareness. What actually happens for a more free person, you know, if practice works, that space becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And so what becomes more predominant in your experience is the experience of that space and the power of that space rather than the content. So you realize this space, that's the promise of the Buddha, that's the way I understand it, certainly, ultimately is endless in capacity. It can actually, once we actually fully realize it, and once we fully access it, it can actually receive anything. So, you know, it can grow way beyond being the size of a pond. So, I'll leave it at that for tonight, I think. <laughs>